Welcome to episode 47 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my hold-up co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Gentlemen, I hope you're both doing all right. I'm doing great here, Winston. It's uh, starting to warm up in Texas, so uh, I keep having to switch between AC and uh, the humidifier in the garage. <laughs> Heat in the morning, it's just kind of been crazy. Um, how about you, Chris? Uh, it's been just kind of cold in LA, but I uh, can't complain. It's not rainy or anything like that, so uh, all around, pretty happy with it. A little rain's not going to kill you. Um, <laughs> right. I think we should address that we have the fourth chair pulled up. Um, we've got uh, Robert Cohen. Um, he runs a really fantastic YouTube channel um, with a little bit of BattleBot stuff and machining stuff. Robert, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. Good to have you on so, the show, Robert. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So we got put in touch with you um, because you do a lot of cool stuff. Um, so for any of our listeners who don't ha- uh, already really know what you do, can you give us like the 30-second elevator pitch of what it is you do on your channel? Yeah, so, you know, back a ways back, um, I was into CNC, so I was doing some CNC conversions and doing all that stuff, you know, the same place that most of us hobbyists start, and then eventually kind of found my way into combat robots, and once you kind of get bit with that bug, you just kind of stay with that until you just give it up and set it on fire and run away from it, so I haven't gotten there yet, but that's kind of where I'm at right now, just all things combat robots. And when you say combat robots, you're talking more like uh, uh, competition in a ring, not the predator drone dropping a hellfire on <laughs> insurgents, right? Correct. Correct. <laughs> so uh, what's sort of your, your technical background? Because um, I know some of us who end up in machining don't necessarily start in an engineering field. Where do you come from? Yeah, I I come from, well, let's just say kind of nowhere. Uh, My background and education is actually psychology. So believe it or not, I have a degree in psychology from CU Boulder with kind of a focus in clinical and cognitive psychology. And I graduated, oh, geez, a long time ago and kind of never really found my way in that field. And um through just a few different um, hobbies that I had, I actually started building audio amplifiers and kind of got into electronics, kind of got into making, doing that, um, building some audio stuff. And that kind of necessitated the need for getting a CNC. So I started kind of building and designing my own CNCs. And then, you know, everything just kind of went from there. Um, but, you know, in terms of my job and what I do on a daily basis, um, I was the head of SparkFun, or the face of SparkFun, rather, um, and I did all their um, promotional videos, kind of the, you know, product posts, the weekly product posts that um, we did, and um, I was the product manager for them for around seven years, so I had a um, lot of exposure into manufacturing electronics and supply chain and things like that. Being a psychologist by training, what's the emotional uh, roller coaster you go through when you like put hours and hours and hours into machine and then uh, I know most of the time you probably win but sometimes your your baby gets smashed to pieces yeah I mean that's you know we could do a whole series of episodes on the psychology behind doing combat robots because it's it's one of the few hobbies where the the, the actual intention is to build something 
just to see how long it can last. And, you know, spoiler alert, most of these robots don't really last that long. You know, I mean, it's generally speaking after one competition, which is anywhere between two and let's say eight fights, it's, it's all 100% trashed. And so you definitely kind of have to wrap your head around that. And, you know, I even do stupid stuff. Like I polish my aluminum and, you know, spray paint everything all nice. And yeah, at the end of it, it's just, it's junk, you know, it goes into a junk pile. So yeah, there's definitely some psychology behind that. And I've been thinking a lot lately about what is the purpose of making, you know, is it the journey? Is it the end product? And you really have to think about that a lot with this hobby. You know, I love watching the videos. I've been a fan of your channel for quite a while. Um, I think I first started following you when I was researching uh, purchase of a Tormark 440 a couple of years ago. Okay. And uh, uh, probably three years ago. Yeah. So you had some, a pretty good series on life with the 440. Um, I think that's right. Was it 440 or seven? 440. Seven, seven, yeah, 440. Yeah. You had some leaks and that kind of stuff you were dealing with, I think, at the time. Um, as far as like the ro the robotic platforms, is the motion control like the same as what you'd put in a CNC, like a gerbil board, or um, what exactly? How do you control those things uh, from an electronics perspective? Oh, combat software. robots. Pardon? Um, uh, combat robots, you mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not what most people think. Um, most people, you know, the first question, everyone's background um, is exposed when they ask that first question about combat robots, right? And most people kind of come at it from, oh, what's the software like? What's the programming? And believe it or not, there's absolutely zero. Um, most of what we use is off-the-shelf electronics that are designed for, like, you know, RC race cars, helicopters, quadcopters, things like that. So most of it is just into a radio receiver, into a speed controller, into the motors. Uh, the biggest thing that we're doing is we're just kind of we're running everything way, way, way beyond the specs of what it's meant to run at. <laughs> so these are all, uh, there's a human operator with the radio control on these. Sure. None of these are like autonomous uh, uh, guidance, right? It's all under yeah. somebody's control. Okay, I got you. Yeah, so, some people have tried doing some autonomy. And, you know, I know some people that, um, you know, pretty good programmers and using like, you know, robot OS and stuff like that. Um, the big problem is, let's just call it predictability. Um, you know, you let's just talk about in like the three-pound weight class because they're weight classes, right? So in the three-pound weight class, it's not uncommon to have like a kilojoule worth of energy involved. And a kilojoule can send a three-pound robot 10 feet in a fraction of a second and you know, gyros, accelerometers, a lot of that stuff, it just doesn't really like to operate in these kinds of environments. So the sensors are where it kind of tends to fail. So do you have any, uh, have you made any with like a blowtorch? <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to address all these questions right now. Um, <laughs> generally what I like to say um, for people that are kind of, you know, just dipping their toes in the idea of combat robots is, the general idea behind them is to generate, store, and transfer kinetic energy. So if you think about how much energy can be stored, generated, and transferred in something like a blowtorch, let's say, the amounts that you can transfer is very limited. Um, if you could take that whole bottle and transfer that whole thing into the opponent all at once, 
that would make sense. And that's on the level of the kind of kinetic energy that we're dealing with. Um, you know, for one of my three pounders, I'm taking, eh, it's a little over a pound worth of mass of um, a special impact resistant steel, and it's spinning close to 10,000 RPM. That generates about two kilojoules worth of energy. And if that comes into contact with something else and stops quickly, that energy then gets transferred into the opponent. So that's that's kind of the name of the game. You know, people always come up with like flamethrowers and EMP and, you know, like a bullet. But, you know, even like a nine millimeter, that would do very little. You know, we're using like literally bulletproof armor and it would just ricochet right off. Yeah. Nothing beats a big sledgehammer. <laughs> yep. So so how do you win in these matches? Is it purely just to destroy your opponent or do you flip them upside down or something? Like last man standing or something? Yeah, yeah, pretty much last man standing. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, it, it, there's a lot of different designs. And that's kind of what I like about it is it's very much rock, paper, scissors. So you can have like a weapon in the horizontal plane. You can have a weapon in the vertical plane. Um, you can have a flipper. You can have, you know, some people just kind of have like a pusher or a wedge bot hammers, saws. There's a lot of different weapons and it really is a rock, paper, scissor. So, you know, this design versus this design, this one's going to win, but then this one can beat this one. And so it's a really interesting kind of game of chess. And generally speaking, yeah, it's just last man standing. You have three minutes and whoever is the last one operating at the end of three minutes, if it goes to three minutes, wins that match. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I, I remember watching videos in Japan uh, for the sumo robot uh -huh. and also the Dekinoka where, like, they almost look like wrestlers and they try to, like, grapple. I don't know if you're familiar with it or if you've seen yeah. it. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I've always been – I've known that part of the, the robot world, but I've never seen, like, um, where the robots are just going in to, like, destroy each other every round. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, I've been watching videos lately because I knew you were going to be a guest on here. So that was kind yeah. of cool. Yeah, it's um, – you know, it's one of those things that when you start getting into the hobby, things break in ways that you're just not even, you can't even <laughs> predict. Um, you know, one of my favorite um, examples was in BattleBots last year, which was on Discovery Channel. Uh, we had a robot called Copperhead, and it has a 50-pound drum of S7, which is a special alloy tool steel that is basically, it's made for impacts. Um, it's kind of what like excavator bucket teeth are made out of things like that. And we spin that around, you know, 8,000 RPM. We came into contact with another robot. So we were generating about 30 kilojoules worth of energy, which you can actually measure that as like one and a half car crashes worth of energy. The other guy had about that much stored. We slammed together. And we have a 40 millimeter thick solid shaft that the weapon runs on and it bent, but it bent parallel. <laughs> so it's kind of like an S almost, but both ends are still parallel with one another, but they're on a different plane. <laughs> now you have a crankshaft. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, that happened in literally a fraction of a second. It's about a thousandth of a second is when all that energy went in. And you can kind of see it's like a path. It's like, okay, can I go here? Can I go there? Oh, here's the wink link. I'm just going to tweak that. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, looking at a picture of that. Um, so you also have like huge wheels on that. Is that part of like your energy storage? Or I guess I don't know if they move fast enough to to uh, like transfer angular momentum into the, into the impact. Or is that just no. traction and grip? 
Yeah, it's wheels. Wheels are kind of the, um, they're always the weak link to the robot, right? If you, if you just set something on the ground, it still has to move and you have to have a rotational component to make a wheel move. So, you know, in this sport, it's always about how do you make a mechanical object as strong as possible? So, you know, using like half inch thick titanium for weapon shafts and things like that. The wheels tend to be the weakest link because they have to be rubber. Well, rubber is a lot softer than steel. And so what we ended up doing is I have a whole video on just the wheels, but these things are about 15 pounds. And believe it or not, each one costs close to $500 to make. Wow. wow. <laughs> it's It's got a um, three-axis machined nylon core. So it comes out of a big billet of nylon. We machine that out. And then the whole thing has this... Um, it's a really expensive polyurethane rubber that we mold over the outside. And then we have um, needle bearings that get press fit on the inside. And then that whole thing rides on a, um, yeah, it's like a two inch shaft that the whole thing rides on. And yeah, th those wheels are very, very durable. <laughs> I'm assuming like pneumatic tires went out a long time ago <laughs> yeah. in the sport, right? Durability, durability, durability. Uh, so when you're designing a robot, take us through kind of the engineering process side of this. Like how, what do you start with? Like, do you start with the frame? Do you start with the wheels and you build your way up? Or what kind of considerations do you have in your mind as you're developing one to, to fight? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, usually the place that I start first is the design. You know, like the, um, and when I say the design, I mean, what is it going to be? Is it going to be a spinner? Is it going to be a flipper? You know, whatever. And I always try and do something new. So my latest bot, um, Psychotic Break, is a three-pound horizontal spinner. So it has the weapon spinning on the horizontal plane. Uh, nice thing about horizontals is they hit kind of along the side of a robot rather than flip it up. Um, if you have a wedge in the front, you know, you can kind of just wedge up. So anyway horizontal spinner. So I typically start with kind of the design of what I'm going to do. So I pick that. And then usually what I'll do is I'll kind of design the weapon system and then the drive system separate. And then I'll kind of design a structure that will hold those two. And if you, I have a whole series on the design from basically the paper sketch to um, actually coming in second place um, in the competition for psychotic break. And it was kind of interesting. I actually designed and built a hub motor so that the weapon could fit, you know, inside. So the weapon itself is actually the motor. It's kind of all one piece. And then the drive system sits. And then I made a um, kind of exoskeleton out of carbon fiber to hold the whole thing together. So you just kind of got to, you know, design each system and then see how they fit together. Hmm. I mean, if, if we're talking durability is the name of the game, right? Because you have to survive at the end of three minute rounds. Yep. Why not just build like a fortress box type thing that is indestructible from everything? Because if it's only if it's like only purely defensive, yeah, purely defensive. <laughs> I mean, against the spinning and the flipping and everything. Um, has anyone done that before? Or is that something that people usually can break through with whatever uh, weapon they have? I'll say it right now. I'll give you five grand if you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's surprisingly difficult um you know that that's kind of what everyone's robot is right um the you know i wish i could kind of give you context for the forces involved but um two years ago i fought a guy that um actually just made a solid bot out of cast aluminum and it was literally just 
a solid brick. Well, it cracked. It literally cracked in half. Um, sometimes doing something, uh, you know, quote unquote, a fortress or as durable as possible really kind of doesn't work because that shock from that impact will travel through the bot and it will find places. And in this case, it literally just cracked the frame. Um, so you kind of have to design around getting hit. And so, you know, for a lot of my bots, the wheels and the drive system is always set in like UHMW, ultra high molecular polyethylene. Um, you know, things kind of have a little bit of cushion factor. I do a lot of 3D printing with um, Nylon X and Nylon G, um, you know, just to kind of absorb some of those impacts. But ultra rigid designs typically have problems because you can easily warp and bend that and then your drive stops working. Mm, okay. Yeah, I guess for me, I'm thinking, you know, I based on the principles of like martial arts where if a person's coming at you with kinetic energy, the best way to defend yourself is usually divert that energy to the side. What if you just kind of had like flappers in the front? So when somebody charges you, you just kind of push it to the side so it doesn't hit your body directly. I'm sure if someone's thought of this, but it's oh, yeah. just, yeah. Yeah, the, just, the biggest defensive thing that people always come up with is the wedge, right? That's exactly what you're talking about. Is it's just a wedge that deflects it and we're at the point to where the amount of gyroscopic forces are um, <laughs> very relevant, right? So when you spin one pound mass at 10,000 RPM, you, you can basically put that robot on any edge and it will just levitate and hover on whatever edge it's touching the ground. It'll just levitate on the side because so much gyroscopic force there. And so if you hit that with a wedge, it will do some very crazy things. So yeah, wedges are very popular because of that, um, but they have to be extremely durable and you have to make sure that they never get hit. Hmm. That's crazy. So, so are you doing, I've, oh, go ahead, Winston, sorry. Um, so I've got a, just a deeper question. Um, out of curiosity, mm -hmm. a lot of these spinners I see, um, you have to have some kind of motor putting energy into that spinner um, which is, uh, I assume you want to put a lot of energy into it as fast as you can, but how do you protect that drive system uh, on impact? Because if that mass is coming to a halt and that motor is pushing it, um, all of a sudden you've got a lot of shock load on that, uh, be it a chain or a drive shaft. Yeah. Um, are there any protection mechanisms just to like stop the kinetic energy from going backwards through the rest of the bot and damaging it? Yeah, and that, that's a that's one of those big philosophical questions. Um, you know, I had a video recently about hub motors, and hub motors, you guys may or may not know, is basically just a motor. Um, it's usually a brushless motor where the outside can. It's usually an outrunner where the outrunner itself is the thing that you're moving. Like, um, you know, the whole hoverboard thing. Those are um, basically hub motors, things like that. And so, if you do a hub motor then all the shock is kind of centralized in that one location and that has pros and cons. If you go with like a belt system, you're kind of introducing a clutch, but you're also kind of introducing a point of failure because the motor is now remotely located and you can break the link between the motor and the weapon. And then you also have a chain, but chains tend to be heavy and they can also break as well. So you kind of got to weigh those three. And so, you know, we have a lot of little tricks and tips that we do. Um, you know, I go in and epoxy all the magnets in place because, yeah, that first hit, they will just explode into dust. So basically epoxying everything in place. Uh, we run everything at a really high cell count, basically as 
many lipocells as we can fit in there for the highest voltage possible. Um, you know, things like that. It's just you, you got to weigh these things. You know, I was using um, hybrid ceramic bearings because I heard that, you know, ceramic bearings have a lot better impact strength. And it's 100 percent true. The hybrid ceramic ball bearings did a lot better. They exploded the inner races. <laughs> <laughs> so the balls were totally fine, but the races shattered in like six places. So now I got to go with something else. Were you doing a uh, full ceramic, like the races were ceramic too, or the nope, hybrids? hybrids. hybrids. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's the thing that I like about it is if you make a chair or a desk or something like that, you can only have so many desks in your house, right? You know, I can only make so many desks. Um, but with a combat robot, almost by definition, it's impermanent. It's going to go away and you're going to have to improve it. You're gonna to have to come up with a new design so you're never done with it. It's always this perpetual build until you're just tired with it, then you retire it, move on and try a new design. So for me, it's actually really nice because I get to keep trying new things and you know I get to play with titanium and you know there's a reason for it. Like, you know, I made one of my weapons out of titanium and it's like, okay, I need to learn how to machine titanium. Yeah, that's amazing. It's very Darwinian uh, arena, I would imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. And Every someone, season's uh, someone's got some, you know, the hot ride right for the season. Yeah, and it's you know a few years back, um, I did a thirty pounder crippling depression, and it just it was it was a disruptive bot. No one had ever really done a design kind of like that, and um, I won a lot of competitions. And if I was to compete with that today, I probably wouldn't win because the whole field has kind of changed in the course of two years to where that bot is not as relevant anymore. Yeah. So the field's just always changing. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a very uh, creative outlet. Like, I think I would enjoy that. I'm going to start watching your more. I, like, I don't, I'm probably like a year behind on yours because I just haven't been keeping up on YouTube very well lately. But yeah. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, but definitely I'm looking at uh, what you got in the last, what you posted recently, uh, like the hub motor article. Yeah. It looks like uh, lots of lots of opportunities to deep dive and find project ideas. Yeah, it's the thing that I like about it is I had always struggled trying to find projects. Um, I'm, I know this is going to sound weird given everything I've already said, but I tend to be a very practical maker, right? If I want to make something, the very first thing I do is I go on Amazon, I go on eBay, I go on Alibaba, whatever, and I see if it already exists. And nine, time out, nine times out of ten, it's something that kind of sort of already exists. And I just buy it and maybe modify it or I just buy it and move on. And, you know, it's like I've never made a cutting board just as an example because I, I can go buy a cutting board, you know. And so I, I kind of put myself into this box to where I don't do projects that I can't just go out and buy. And combat robots is a great way because you just can't buy any of this stuff. You have to build everything from scratch. And once you start going down that rabbit hole, you're making your own wheels. You know, some people even make their own motors. Like, you know, you saw in the hub motor video, I'm machining the motor down and completely customizing the motor, you know, buying customized magnets and, you know, modifying the electronics and you get to this point where you just, you have to learn about soldering. You have to learn about electronics. You have to learn how to machine some weird, crazy materials. Yeah. I mean, that, that's my favorite kind of project is mechatronics. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not into like 
making cutting boards or furniture, but uh, if it's something that moves and functions, then I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah. And there is, you know, if you um, go back maybe two, three, well, I'm going to say two or three weeks, but it's probably like two or three months. Um, if you go back, I did a um, really interesting video that was the sound of Copperhead's drum. And it kind of gives a little bit of context. You have this 250 pound robot, which most people can't really conceptualize what 250 pounds of steel feels like or looks like, um, unless you're there in person. But I did this video to kind of give context. I set up a um, nice audio recorder and did an audio recording of the drum in action. And it peaks at about 115 decibels from six feet away. And I mean, and that is literally just a piece of metal moving around, chopping the air. That's not motor noise. That's not mechanical noise. That's literally just the drum moving air out of the way. That's, that's nuts. That's insane. It's a beautiful sound. And it's like <laughs> 30 horsepower to get that thing up to speed. It's just wow. nuts. <laughs> so what's your, what's a typical duration for, uh, like a competition um, or a round of a competition. Are we talking a few minutes or are these like hour long death fests? Uh, three minutes, three, three minutes. minutes. Okay. Yep. And that probably yeah, seems just, like it's forever. Right? Yeah. It's um, three minutes is more than enough. Most of these things can't survive that long. So most matches, you know, one to two minutes. Um, but thing the, the cool thing about three minutes is Electronics just don't have enough time to really heat up and start failing in that time. And at the end of three minutes, sometimes the bot is literally just smoking. Like you can see the heat wave <laughs> coming off of it. And in my 30 pounder, I had one fight that went the full three minutes. The weapon was pegged the whole time. And at the end of it, um, 12 gauge solder connectors had just melted out. And I mean, the wire had melted out from the sheath. Yeah, so you're you're like drawing current from those lipo batteries like at their I guess at their maximum rate, right? And probably oh, yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah, we, we have to shop around for the highest discharge rate. So, you know, that battery is like a I think it's a two amp hour, but it's like hundred and five C, so it can do about eh, 200, 250 amps. And yeah, we will run that thing into protection mode to where we're pulling past two hundred and fifty amps. That's crazy. Wow. So I'm just thinking like, you know, 250 pound machine, it's 30 horsepower spinning up, running around. Are you guys fighting in like a, like a three inch thick polycarbonate ring or something? Or how are you guys protected for when this stuff is flying around? Yeah. So good question. The, the big boys, there's really not that many competitions out there. Um, the only heavyweight arena in the U S right now is the BattleBots arena, which is owned by BattleBots and discovery channel. And I mean, it takes like, I think it takes them a couple weeks to put together and it's got, um, you know, steel truss on the floor and it has the steel plates. I think it has, I think this year we're getting half inch thick steel plates um, for the floor and the walls are polycarb and they're, um, I forgot the exact dimensions, but there's an air gap in between each one so that, you know, it'll flex and that absorbs some of the impact and then you have the second one, but it's like two or three layers thick of polycarb. And I've been told that that arena costs anywhere from two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars. Wow! 
Yeah. And what about when you guys are just practicing? Like, do you guys wear like shin guards? Like, I'm just trying to imagine the protection <laughs> that you have to wear. I mean, if this thing decides to go in the wrong direction, it'll take someone's leg out, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, no, it wouldn't take someone's <laughs> leg out. I mean, it would just you'd be gone. Um, it would just there'd be a nice mist, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, th this is kind of one of those really controversial topics, um, and I kind of cover it in the sound video because I'm obviously running it. Um, on Copperhead, which is the big one, we have two separate uh, power systems and two separate switches for the power systems, and we will never run both of them at the same time. So for testing the weapon, um, we usually stake it down to the ground and turn off the drive, like actually disable the drive system so it can't physically move and then only test the weapon. And then when we test the drive, we do the opposite. We disable the weapon, um, put in the weapon lock in there and just test the drive. So the only time we're actually ever testing both together is inside the official arena. Oh, okay. I see. Yep. That's fascinating. And it's... You know, you should, um, I have the playlist on Copperhead and whatnot. It's really interesting to see we've gotten to the point where you can generate and store just so much kinetic energy. Um, you know, you have this 250-pound hunk of steel that I'm guessing any of you would have a problem even, like, lifting it up on its edge. But when we get that drum going, if you turn around in a circle too fast, it will just instantly go vertical on one wheel because of the gyroscopic forces of the drum. So it's really weird to see 250 pounds pop up in the air in a half a second just because <laughs> that drum wants to be in that orientation. <laughs> That's crazy. Have you uh, have you done any work with tungsten for the for its kind of mass advantage? I don't know if it's just yeah. probably too brittle, but no, tungsten's great. Um, I it's funny you say that because I just kind of discovered tungsten recently and. Um, I want to build something in the ant weight class, which is the one pound class, which is little itty bitty guys, but they're still pretty dangerous. Um, I was thinking about doing a solid tungsten weapon or, you know, some kind of body out of it, something because yeah, tungsten's fantastic. Um, I've also looked at magnesium. If I could get a good enough block of magnesium, I think that would make a really cool, um, like unibody frame. Oh yeah. That'd be sweet. Yeah, you uh, and it looks like you're so you've got the 440, and I think you have a you have an avid router there, right? Is that yeah. what you're doing your carbon fiber and, and frame stuff on? I, um, you know what? I'll, I'll be honest. I actually outsource my carbon fiber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it <laughs> makes sense. That's just a mess yeah. to cut. <laughs> there's there's this guy, and I don't know what his deal is. But I was doing a frame out of six millimeter thick carbon fiber, which is pretty darn thick. And I was looking around for material, trying to find, you know, plates of this stuff. And I found this guy and he does like quadcopter frames, blah, blah, blah. Contacted him and I'm like, hey, do you have six millimeter? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. I sent him the files. It was cheaper to have him cut it and ship it than it was for me to buy the material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I also don't want to mess with carbon fiber because you really should be cutting that stuff underwater. And yeah, it's, it's a messy, bad thing to be cutting. Yeah, it's not the healthiest dust in the world. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you've touched on these things a couple times, um, but how do you guys fund the the whole combat robot thing? Because uh, it seems like it could get pretty pricey really fast. Yeah, we're, we're just stupid. We're just, you know, 
we we just kind of take our money out of the bank, walk over to the dumpster and put it in the dumpster and rinse and repeat. <laughs> it's everyone's got hobbies, right? And um, I don't want to sit there and defend combat robots and say that it's like a smart hobby. It, it's really not. I mean, I might as well just like get a boat or something. Um, it, it's a very expensive hobby. And if you do it like what I do is, you know, I'm always trying to use exotic materials and whatnot. I mean, it can be pretty expensive. Um, Copperhead, which is the 250 pound bot, that's about $25,000. Wow. Wow. And, you know, it's, you can build one for a lot less. You know, could you do one for 5,000? Oh, totally. You totally could. Um, but to really have it be competitive and have it do what it needs to do, you know, you really got to drop in the tens of thousands of dollars to get one done. Um, you know, that the frame is all one inch thick hard box and that yeah. stuff is not cheap. That's I mean, yeah. I would say that's just your raw material costs. You're not even counting your R and D and probably your time. It's yeah, yeah. That that's actually just material cost. Yep. Yeah. Wow. I mean, from everything that I've heard, though, it's more than just the and hobby because it's like you. Yes, it's a lot of money, but you're also learning a ton of stuff that normally people wouldn't learn. Um, oh. You're doing something that you enjoy, and it's something that sounds incredibly fun um, and you know exciting to do. Most hobbies don't have this kind of excitement where there's a there's a both a combination of creation, creativity, and then also competition. You know, I feel like that stuff is very uh, very cool. Yeah, and I'm not. You know, I, I didn't intend to go on this podcast and talk about, you know, be a poster child for combat robots, right? But it is an interesting thing. Um, you'll be in the competition. You'll bring your pretty shiny little robot there that you spent, you know, six months building and several hundred dollars. You'll put it in the arena and you'll be fighting someone else. And at the end, you know, someone will stop moving and that person will just be like, hit it again, hit it again. And they'll just be like, they, <laughs> we all just want to see what happens when you spin up a massive metal and slam it into another thing. And at the end of the fight, if one guy bursts into flames, we're high-fiving each other. Like, that's what we came there for. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's it's fun. And it's it's a really good community. It's really collaborative. Um, for the last few years, I've been trying my best to just I share every single thing that I learn. So, you know, I try and make a video on every little tip and secret. And I usually do a full build log of all my bots. So it's like, here, you know, you want to know the weaknesses? Here are the weaknesses. Here's the strengths. Here's the weaknesses. Here's how I designed it. Here's how you can defeat it. And, you know, that really helps everyone get better. Uh, so you were touching on the, the just the community aspect of it. Um, I was actually going to ask you, like, what what is it like, um, like behind the scenes in the pits? Because we see everything that happens on TV, but like, I I can tell that everyone's stressed, everyone's rushing. But um, are you all like just on the same wavelength, like working together, supportive, or is there like a like a secrecy? Do you like have an iron curtain like between you and the the other guys? Um, how do you guys just all like vibe behind the scenes? Yeah, that, it's a good question. Um, it's so much more collaborative than you might think. Um, or maybe not, I'm not going to assume. Um, there are definitely some teams that will kind of do a curtain, you know, over their bots. Um, it's the whole season of BattleBots filming-wise takes about two and a half weeks. And so it's two and a half weeks where you're you know, living in a hotel, you're working out of this um, unnamed location um, outside of LA. And you know you have this huge warehouse that you're in. 
And you know when you're going to fight like a couple days in advance, right? So the production crew comes up to you and they're like, hey, you're fighting so-and-so. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to go get a drink of water. And then you just kind of walk by the other team and, hey, how are you guys <laughs> doing? You just kind of like look over at their bot. And we, we all have this method. Um, it, it's all a vertical game, right? So the wheels have to sit on the ground. The bot has to sit on the ground. Well, what else is touching the ground? How high is the forks? How high is their weapon? So I always carry around a wheel because I know that this wheel is like four inches. So I'll kind of, you know, absentmindedly set the wheel next to the other guy's bot. And I know that, okay, that's about four inches up. And so, you know, we all kind of have our little tricks, but generally speaking, we all know everyone else's bot. And if someone needs a motor, if someone needs batteries, I mean, you know, in between fights, we were helping other teams that we were fighting, you know, machine parts that were specifically made to beat us. And that's just kind of how it goes. We just want to have a good fight and we want it to be good TV. Hmm. Do you ever sandbag other teams by putting fake stuff on your robot when you know they're walking by to take a look at it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, we did... I think one year, you know, someone did like, they put their bot underneath a big sheet, right? And they put a traffic cone on top of it with the sheet. So it's like, what the heck is that? It just looked like this huge attachment on top and everyone's trying to figure it out. Like people will definitely do stuff like that to try and psych them up. Um, halfway through the competition, you kind of know what everyone's got. You know, you just kind of know, okay, this team spins up well. They don't have issues with this. You kind of learn them. But, yeah, you can definitely do some little attachments, you know, things like that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, uh, we used to do that a lot in motorcycle racing. You know, teams, same thing as, this, as you just described. We are all there to compete, to have fun. We'll help each other when it's in need. But we will definitely peek at other people's setup to see what's going on. And like we will also fake our own setup so that people try to copy the wrong thing, you know. So that that it's funny that this transverses to different types of competition, but it's also uh, good to hear that that that's the case. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a bit of a uh, battlebots is a bit of a different animal because usually in a normal competition it lasts one day. You know, you have a Saturday where we all get together and the competition lasts the day. But when it's two and a half weeks you know, you might have three days in between matches. And I'll tell you what, you can get a lot done in three days. Um, Tormach is usually there. So they have a couple of um, staff and machines on hand. Um, last year, Lincoln Electric was a huge sponsor. So they had a huge welding booth with all of their goodies. And then McMaster, which you guys know McMaster? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> McMaster actually has a person sitting there and get this. Same day delivery, and in most cases, same hour delivery from McMaster. <laughs> wow. So you place an order, you just tell them what you need, write it down on a piece of paper, and you come back in a couple hours and you have your order. It's amazing. <laughs> That's pretty cool that they do that. I didn't even know that, that they were one of the sponsors. I don't honestly know if they sponsored or if they're just like, we know we're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Because some of our bolts, you know, some of the, the bolts that hold our top panel on are like $15 a piece, and there's 10 of them. <laughs> oh, man. You know, so it's just... Are you, going, are you going for like grade 8 or something even more exotic than that? 
I think it's grade eight, but they're a really weird size and they're big. I think they're like seven eighths inch. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're big screws, and we we can pop those out pretty easy. There was one um, one guy that we fought, and yeah, one hit and like six of them just kind of popped off. <laughs> So, like, for me, I'm super curious about this now, and I don't have any experience as far as, like, building this robot. And let's say somebody who's listening is also in that same situation. Yeah. Is there any advice you'd give to, to me or that person of how to, like, get into this? Definitely. Um, I've given this much thought, you know, having the YouTube channel. Um, my first step is always to get yourself in the community. Um, I have a video on my website or on YouTube that is the Combat Robot Resource Guide. And that is kind of my introduction into this. And what I don't do is I don't say, okay, you're going to want to do this. You're going to want to get this motor. You're going to want to get this battery. No. What I want to do is I want to teach people how to fish. I want to tell you where are the resources where you can ask the questions, things like that. And so my recommendation is to watch that video it has a document in it that is ever-changing, and it has a link to all of the local events. Um, obviously, nothing's going on right now, but my advice is to just find an event near you. Don't build anything and go to an event because you will find out that a little one-pound bot will be much, much scarier than you think it is. And it's really good to have that context of seeing that thing in person, talking with some builders, kind of getting you know involved in the culture and then going off and building something. Because I guarantee you, even if someone is a very good designer and has a lot of mechanical background, you will have a very sad time if you build before you go to a competition. <laughs> You're going to be that bot that I love facing where I just turn on my weapon, go up to it, go back in the corner, and then they just start crying. <laughs> <laughs> Because it, it's very difficult, and there's a lot of things that you just don't realize until you go see it in person. You're like, oh, okay, a one-pound bot can fly against the Lexan at 100 miles an hour. Cool, got it. <laughs> yeah, I guess usually when I'm designing something, I'm trying to make it look pretty and functional. I don't typically try to think of how I can destroy it or if it can be destroyed. Yeah. It's usually not the thing that's across my mind, but that's very interesting to keep in thought. So, yeah, thanks yeah. for that. Sure. Yeah, that, that's kind of, you know, the thing that I like is just, you know, see it in person, see if you like it. Um, it's really cool when you see these little bots in an arena, like the, the one and the three pounders are just fantastic because they're relatively inexpensive to build. They're generally pretty durable. I mean, they're called the insect class for a reason because it's, you know, they're pretty strong and they can get thrown around a lot. But I mean, it's pretty common to have a little one or three pound bot get slammed into the ceiling multiple times and then just keep coming back for more. So it's really fun. So it looks like you have a pretty pretty well equipped shop. Are you um, making anything else in there other than the robotic related stuff? You know, I think that's pretty much it for right now. I'm, I'm definitely wanting to kind of branch out and do some other things. It's, you know, there's kind of always a competition around the corner and every single competition i'm just like i tell my wife i'm like hey as soon as we get back from this competition i'm going to put the robots away i'm going to try something else and then someone emails me and they're like hey there's a competition coming up and i'm like oh. <laughs> so you cutting, know, cutting boards will have to wait <laughs> yeah exactly 
Um, I've been doing a lot of shop stuff. Um, I've been doing a lot of reorganization. Um, I have the, I don't want to sound bad here, but I have the curse of having a relatively large shop. And I learned that if you have a larger shop, you actually need to do a lot. You need to do a lot of organization because it's really easy just to go on Craigslist and buy a bunch of stuff and then just toss it in the corners. And then you realize, oh, wait, I overfilled the shop. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've been doing a lot of organizing lately and trying to figure out where things go. So, you know, I built like a, a little stand or cart for my laser cutter. And, um, you know, I relocated my uh, 3D printers inside in my office, which is kind of just a better place for them. So, you know, just doing a lot of kind of organization, getting the shop ready. Is your shop at home? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just my garage. So we have a like extended three car garage. So um, I just use the whole thing. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So it's, what's your, what's the next uh, big competition coming up for you? I don't know. Um, at this moment right now, we actually oh, yeah. would have been in the finals for BattleBots. Um, we would have been out in LA and I think today would have been the finals. Um, so that's postponed kind of indefinitely. Um, all of the competitions are going to be postponed and, I don't really know how this year is going to shake up because a lot of the teams are at BattleBots. And if that gets pushed back till, I don't know, July or August, then all the other competitions are going to be kind of pushed back. So, yeah, not really sure. But, you know, like I'm following um, Winston's channel. I've been following his channel for a while. And um, he does, like I was speaking earlier about, you know, my practical side. You know, Winston, hats off to you. You are always just trying new things and I always catch myself and I'm like, well, what am I going to do with that? And you're just constantly making stuff. And I applaud you for that. I just, I, I do not have that um, level of dedication. So congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you, first of all. But it also sort of comes with the territory, right? Like um, I am kind of a weird full-time content creator. And so my job is to teach people or inspire people. But that's also kind of, secondary to what drove me to this point, which is that um, I want to be learning something new. And just like you, like if I'm making the same thing again, it takes away a lot of the fun. So what I really like doing is just finding a project that forces me to learn a new technique or pushes me in a different direction. So I'm always looking for just something different, something maybe a little off the beaten path that I can just sink my teeth into and just play with because it, the fun part is is doing something that is uh, in uncharted territory for you. Yeah, yeah. I I just today one of the projects I'm working on, which is I don't know if you do this as well, but I I do a lot of off camera work, right? I don't film a lot of the stuff that I do, and I kind of you know prototype a little bit and figure it out and make sure I kind of have a handle on it before I kind of dive in with the camera on. Um, but the thing that I was playing around with this weekend was doing inlays but doing aluminum with wood inlays. Um, so actually machining out big blocks of aluminum and then inlaying wood into that. And that was actually pretty fun. I got it to where if you close your eyes, you can't feel the transition, um, which it took a little bit of work to get that working, right? Mm -hmm. That's also tricky though, because the wood has a, it'll expand to different things, the humidity versus yeah. the aluminum or the thermals might 
be more of a thing. So it's hard to get these things stable, but if you use like a stabilized wood or you let epoxy soak into it, then you sand everything. Um, but that's like, it's a lot more fun to do something different because a lot of people, they think, oh, wood, let me like inlay a different wood or inlay brass. Um, that's why when I made like my resin little catch-all tray, I was like, let's not do like pour resin into wood. Let's put wood into resin yeah. and sort of just flip the formula. So you're so you're a full-time maker then? Uh, yeah, you could say that. So okay. <laughs> um, I, I sort of came into this. I was making things um, after I got home from work. And then I got to the point where going to work, I uh, couldn't stop thinking about what I would do once I got home. Um, and so eventually when Carbide was like, hey, do you want a job working for us making project videos? I was like, sure. Like that's that's the perfect way for me to be making things and then make a living out of it. Because it's really hard to do the thing where you go full time on YouTube just solo. Yeah. Um, so having a company sort of like making sure I can pay rent is is nice and having the creative freedom to make whatever I want. Um, they do. There are some constraints on that, like, hey, you need to put up some basic videos. Um, but for the most part, I can I can have fun and just go through Pinterest or Etsy, see whatever catches my eye, and just decide to make that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a good um, good bit of creative freedom, and I'm very lucky to have that. But uh, I, lately, I've been looking for a, a longer term project that I can really sink my teeth into. And I'm not sure what that is yet. Um, last year, it was like the aluminum longboard and the uh, the camp knife that I made. Mm -hmm. This year, so far, it's I'm off to a slow start. Um, I don't know what a long-form project would be. Um, I was going to make another longboard um, just in preparation for uh, Maker Central in the UK, uh, just so I could cruise around London uh, in a little more uh, speed and, and grace. Well, I say grace, but it'd <laughs> really actually be quite clumsy. But... Um, it'd just be a cool something to bring with me, like a travel board. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, it's I don't have any long-term projects, and I'm I'm staring at a picture of your robot right now, and and <laughs> the cogs are starting to turn in my head. Which one are you looking at? Uh, well, I think Eddie sent a picture of Copperhead to the group. Yeah, Copperhead. Uh, okay. Gotcha. So um, it's all. It's been a perspective I've been really interested in because I totally, like what you said about kinetic energy transfer really resonates with me. And so I've just been thinking of like, what's the most efficient way? Um, do you want the impactor to be blunt? Or do you want it to be sharp? And just <laughs> little things like that. So there's, there's actually a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of physics around there. And, you know, just quite simply, sharp versus blunt. You don't, sharp, you're impacting you're transferring the energy over a very small area. So what's going to happen with something that's sharp, it's going to blunt it. But a blunt object hitting against something else, you get maximum energy transfer. So, you know, making it so that your leading edge on the weapon as it spins is on a plane to where when it comes into contact with the opponent that it hits as much a flat as possible. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, yeah interesting science. There's a there's some guys out of Brazil, uh, Rio Bots, that um, literally wrote the book on this stuff, and they have all the formulas about engagement and you know how much you need on the weapon to actually engage into the other robot to effectively transfer. And yeah, you start really going down a rabbit hole very very quickly. Yeah, we still got about uh, six more minutes, maybe. Anything you want to um, share with the audience or? Uh, kind of 
plug. I think we'll we'll put the link for your YouTube channel in the show notes. Any other um, sites that you'd recommend uh, for the audience to check out? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm I'm really not I'm not a very good maker, honestly. Um, I, I have the YouTube channel and I do you know the Facebooks and whatnot, but um, really I'm not that active in the community. I watch a lot of YouTube videos, but I'm really just not that kind of in the scene as much. Um, I think I kind of got burned out when I was working at uh, SparkFun and, you know, I go to the maker fairs and people would like run up to me and give me hugs completely unsolicited. That was really strange. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think, you know, any of your guys' content that you're putting out, you're doing some great stuff. Um, I'm mostly just focused on the combat robot stuff right now. Um, I'm I'm trying to watch, um, you know, Frank Howarth, Howarth, um, I'm trying to watch as much of his stuff as possible lately, trying to get ideas on what I can do with the um, Avid CNC. Because I've, you know, having a router is very, very different than having the Tormach. They're they're very different machines, which I'm actually I'm really happy about. I was I was hoping that I wouldn't get the Avid and then never use my Tormach again, but totally not the case. Um, a lot of times I will actually use both of them for the same project. Yeah, I'm assuming you have pretty high RPM spindle on the Avid. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a completely different set of capabilities and and type of material that uh, those machines are optimal for versus something yeah. like a Tormach. Yeah, I'm finding that the Avid is actually surprisingly better at removing aluminum, um, but the Tormach is better for. Um, uh, surface finish and floor finish. Um, edge finish and wall finish is actually very, very good on the Avid, but um, the biggest thing I'm struggling with right now is it's very difficult to face anything off. Um, so I've been talking with Avid and um, a man of tools. They have a um, facing bit that has inserts on it that's specifically made for aluminum. So I'm going to try that. Um, but that's the biggest thing I'm running into is facing off a large block of aluminum has been kind of problematic with the Avid. Okay. What size, what diameter facing mill are you typically using, just out of curiosity? Um, I haven't been using a facing mill because oh, the, okay. gotcha. the, the problem with an Avid is the um, the lowest spindle speed is 8,000. And it's kind of tricky to find an ER20 um, shank on a facing mill. You know, usually it's gonna be like an R8 or a BT30 or something like that. So it's hard to find a facing mill that can do aluminum, that has the profile for aluminum, that is good at running at high speed and also can fit into the collet. Yeah, so I have a machine from Daytron. So they make, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, so they make yeah, gantry style machines um, and they make their own tooling. So they have a, on the Neo that I have here, I run a 14 inch solid carbide facing mill that's designed for aluminum and it's it's awesome it has an eight millimeter shank so it would fit in your er collet okay. you get a metric metric collet and uh you know it's not real big i don't know how much power you have on your router but uh, i have a two kilowatt spindle and i can run that at uh thirty thousand rpm okay yeah so it's designed for you know it's balanced for high rpm yeah and, uh, yeah, that yeah, I'll you, yeah i'll send you the the link on the email okay or on yeah, to your, uh, to the show yeah, that's been that's been the biggest issue that I've had right now is um, I can hog out aluminum no problem. I have the um, 2.2 kilowatt spindle, the three horsepower, and 
I have not had an issue with it bogging down, but there's just not great tooling uh, beyond, you know, just your standard endmills. I really haven't found anything that's balanced like that. So yeah, that that's perfect. Yeah, they make a whole line of uh, single flute endmills that are uh, designed for aluminum that are balanced up to 60,000 RPM, um, which is unusual for single flute, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, those, those just cut through. Like, if you look at my latest Instagram stuff, uh, I'll send you that link. You'll kind of see. And I haven't really been going crazy in aluminum yet, um, but in the next couple of weeks, I should be ramping up. Okay. So, uh, i show you what those tools can do. But yeah, I think, and they work well. I would think they'd work well on the average, probably, you know, very similar yeah. spindle power and probably RPM range. Okay, um, let's check that out. Yeah, you'll just, uh, I don't know if you have coolant on that at all or. Not yet. Um, I've got, I, I actually just um, changed out the bed. So the, the long story here is um, I made a little robot eh, maybe six months ago um, that was low, low, man. I tried to do a different design, which was how thin can I possibly make a combat robot? Um, so I ended up making a bot that was um, 14 millimeters thick total. So from the bottom of the wow. floor to the top of the wheels, it's 14 millimeters and to get it to where it could actually drive reasonably well, um, I ended up having to do these little tiny, tiny gear motors. But I did a 12-wheel drive in this thing with like custom ESCs, and <laughs> it was just one of those you know, crazy projects. Um, but the whole frame was just made out of a single billet, and I found that when cutting a large billet like that, having just a standard MDF table was just not. It just wasn't working out. You just can't really clamp to MDF the way that I wanted to. Yeah. Um, so just this last weekend, I completed my quote unquote um, hybrid bed design where the first third of my bed is actually um, T-slot aluminum tables. And then the second two thirds is just your traditional aluminum. So the first 16 inches of my table is just these large plates of T-slot aluminum. And so that gives me a place. I actually have a Kurt vise that I have mounted into that. So basically the front half is kind of like, you know, a traditional mill with a T-slot table. And then the back side of it is your typical MDF. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good setup. Very yeah. flexible. So um, I have a fog buster mounted. I just haven't ran all the tubing and kind of haven't figured out how I'm going to position the nozzle and everything. Uh, but I do have a fog buster so that I can use it on that front half. So I don't have to worry about doing anything to the MDF in the back. Yeah, yeah, that'll help a lot with uh, you know high RPM in aluminum. So yeah, very good, awesome, cool. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing what you come out with next. Hopefully, you're you know with the virus lockdown, you're you're getting plenty of time to, to think <laughs> of new designs. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, kind of. I I actually do, I do have a full-time job and I've actually been working um, pretty much full-time, well, actually full-time. Um, so yeah, I haven't had as much time as I've liked, um, have to um, kind of focus on work a lot lately. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you joining us tonight and uh, always been a big fan of your work and you're just kind of sharing everything that you've been doing. That's awesome. That's like my favorite kind of YouTube channel. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks it. for coming on. I'm, I appreciate yeah, sharing your uh, you. sure. tips and stuff.
Yeah, and so for anyone listening, um, if you want to kind of get a better idea of what I'm talking about, um, go to my channel, Robert Cowan DIY on YouTube, and um, I encourage you to check out the um, Psychotic Break video series. It's kind of the best uh, video series I have that kind of walks you through the design concept, what I'm trying to accomplish, and then kind of the engineering all along the way, and then finally to the competition, and then even an aftermath of all the damage that happened in the competition. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely have a, a link to your YouTube channel in the show notes, so if you, if you didn't have a pin when you were listening to this, just uh, check that out in the show notes. Okay, guys, well, I'm going to say good night. Yeah, good night, guys. Yeah, Good talking to you, Robert. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.